0: Sublime Passages in Wordsworth's The Prelude In our last two sessions, we have been looking at the concept of the sublime as it was understood in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. We used Edmund Burke and Immanuel Kant to explore the philosophical underpinnings of the sublime, and we then used Percy Shelley's 1816 poem Mont Blanc as an example of the application of those concepts. Before we move on to a more chronological exploration of some important texts from the Romantic period, I want to look at one more example of the sublime. There are a number of interesting passages in Wordsworth's The Prelude or Growth of a Poet's Mind, an autobiographical poem, that suggest the concept of sublimity. This poem is much too complex to discuss comprehensively here, but I want to focus on just a few selected passages that deal with sublimity so that we can compare them with Shelley's depiction of this same concept. Wordsworth worked on this long poem throughout most of his life, and there are several different manuscript versions that survive, although the two most often seen are the 1805 and 1850 versions. Some publishers, such as Pearson Longman in the Longman Anthology of British Literature that I use in my face-to-face course, use the 1805 version and feel that it is truer to Wordsworth's original Romanticism. Wordsworth, unlike most of his Romantic contemporaries, lived a rather long life, and many scholars feel that his later work is more emblematic of a Victorian sensibility than the radicalism that characterized much of the Romantic period. However, in some cases, the later 1850 version uses language that is more explicit in its evocation of the sublime. I will be sure to specify which version I am citing, and in some cases, we will look at a few passages side by side for comparison. I'll begin with Book 1, lines 352 to 362, and here I'm using the 1805 version. The mind of man is framed even like the breath and harmony of music. There is a dark, invisible workmanship that reconciles discordant elements and makes them move in one society. Ah, me, that all the terrors, all the early miseries, regrets, vexations, lassitudes, that all the thoughts and feelings which have been infused into my mind should ever have made up the calm existence that is mine when I am worthy of myself. A few of the lines here refer to a dark, invisible workmanship that are slightly suggestive of the sublime. A little later, in this first book of the Prelude, is a famous passage in which a young Wordsworth steals a small boat, a shepherd's boat that was tied to a willow tree by a lake. He suggests that he was led to do this, presumably by nature, and he soon has a dramatic encounter with nature. I'm going to begin this passage after he has stolen the boat and is rowing under the stars, for the incident takes place at night. I'm beginning at line 402 in the 1805 text. Lustily, I dipped my oars into the silent lake, and as I rose upon the stroke, my boat went heaving through the water like a swan, when, from behind that craggy steep till then the bound of the horizon, a huge cliff As if with voluntary power instinct upreared its head, I struck and struck again, and growing still in stature, the huge cliff rose up between me and the stars, and still, with measured motion, like a living thing, strode after me. With trembling hands I turned, and through the silent water stole my way back to the cavern of the willow tree. There, in her mooring place, I left my bark, and through the meadows homeward went, with grave and serious thoughts— And after I had seen the spectacle, for many days my brain worked with a dim and undetermined sense of unknown modes of being. In my thoughts there was a darkness, call it solitude or blank desertion. No familiar shapes of hourly objects, images of trees of sea or sky, no colors of green fields, but huge and mighty forms that do not live like living men moved slowly through the mind by day and were the trouble of my dreams." That passage is usually interpreted as representing a loss of innocence and that Wordsworth is haunted by guilt for the theft of the boat. What is interesting for our purposes is his reference to these huge and mighty forms that do not live like living men moving through his mind. These dark and clearly inhuman forces are suggestive of the sublime Somewhat later, in Book 6 of the Prelude, there is a passage where Wordsworth is traveling in the Alps. This passage is from lines 592 to 599, and here the version is the 1850 text. Imagination, here, the power so called, through sad incompetence of human speech, that awful power rose from the mind's abyss like an unfathered vapor that enwraps at once some lonely traveler. I was lost, halted without an effort to break through, but to my conscious soul I now can say, I recognize thy glory. Note the reference to an awful power that rose from the mind's abyss. This passage sounds more Shelleyan in its direct invocation of the sublime. The other point I want to make is that the 1850 version explicitly mentions Mont Blanc, which is not referenced directly in the version from 1805. In 1850, Wordsworth writes, From a bare ridge we also first beheld unveiled the summit of Mont Blanc. Turning finally to the 13th and concluding book of the 1805 version, there is a passage where Wordsworth climbs Mount Snowdon in Wales and has a vision of the landscape at night with the moon shining in the heavens. Picking up at line 66, A meditation rose in me that night upon the lonely mountain when the scene had passed away, and it appeared to me the perfect image of a mighty mind, of one that feeds upon infinity, that is exalted by an underpresence, the sense of God, or whatsoever is dim or vast in its own being." I will compare this to a longer passage in the later version, in what is now book 14, lines 70 to 120 from 1850. Again, he refers to climbing Mount Snowdon in Wales. There I beheld the emblem of a mind that feeds upon infinity, that broods over the dark abyss, intent to hear its voices issuing forth to silent light in one continuous stream, a mind sustained by recognitions of transcendent power in sense conducting to ideal form in soul of more than mortal privilege One function, above all, of such a mind, had nature shadowed there by putting forth mid-circumstances awful and sublime, that mutual domination which she loves to exert upon the face of outward things, so molded, joined, abstracted, so endowed with interchangeable supremacy, that men, least sensitive, see, hear, perceive, and cannot choose but feel, THE POWER WHICH ALL ACKNOWLEDGE WHEN THUS MOVED, WHICH NATURE THUS TO BODILY SENSE EXHIBITS, IS THE express RESEMBLANCE OF THAT GLORIOUS FACULTY THAT HIGHER MINDS BEAR WITH THEM AS THEIR OWN. THIS IS THE VERY SPIRIT IN WHICH THEY DEAL WITH THE WHOLE COMPASS OF THE UNIVERSE. THEY, FROM THEIR NATIVE SELVES, CAN SEND ABROAD KINDRED MUTATIONS, FOR THEMSELVES CREATE A LIKE EXISTENCE. And whenever it dawns, created for them, catch it, or are caught by its inevitable mastery. Like angels stopped upon the wind by sound of harmony from heaven's remotest spheres, them, the enduring, and the transient both serve to exalt. They build up greatest things from least suggestions ever on the watch, willing to work and to be wrought upon. They need not extraordinary calls to rouse them, In a world of life they live, by sensible impressions, not enthralled, but by their quickening impulse made more prompt to hold fit converse with the spiritual world. And with the generations of mankind spread over time, past, present, and to come age after age till time shall be no more such minds are truly from the deity for they are powers and hence the highest bliss that flesh can know is theirs the consciousness of whom they are habitually infused through every image and through every thought and all affections by communion raised from earth to heaven from human to divine hence endless occupation for the soul whether discursive or intuitive end of quote Note especially the lines 69 to 73 from the 1805 text and the corresponding lines in the 1815 version. First, the 1805. It appeared to me the perfect image of a mighty mind, of one that feeds upon infinity, that is, exalted by under an under-presence, the sense of God, or whatsoever is dim or vast in its own being. And the lines from the 1850 version. There I beheld the emblem of a mind that feeds upon infinity, that broods over the dark abyss, intent to hear its voices issuing forth to silent light in one continuous stream, a mind sustained by recognitions of transcendent power. Now, the phrase, circumstances awful and sublime, appears in both versions, but I would argue that the comparison of the two reveals that the 1850 version seems darker, especially the reference to the mind that feeds upon infinity. That phrase is in both versions, but in the later version, this mind broods over the dark abyss. I suggest that Wordsworth's later vision is closer to the vision Shelley depicted in Mont Blanc than in Wordsworth's earlier version. It's also interesting that God is named in the 1805 version, whereas he is not explicitly named in the later text. I don't want to make too much of this because Wordsworth is still a very different poet from Shelley. And even in his darker passages, Wordsworth's view of the sublime still feels like a somewhat safer and more comfortable place than Shelley's. But I think it's an interesting exercise to examine this particular concept and explore how the two different poets have depicted it.